This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hi, this is Ray Cairns talking to Sam Elliott about my debut novel, The Good Mother. Yeah, Ray Cairns, thank you so much for introducing us to this night's episode of the Right Way Podcast program uh, with me, your host, Samuel Elliott, person whom you just heard introducing this episode. As you've come to expect now, I would imagine with the uh, formula that we've created there, tried and true, is tonight's guest on the program, Ray Cairns. Ray Cairns and I were discussing her debut novel that has uh, been tremendously well, The Good Mother, uh, which was shortlisted for the 2021 Ned Kelly Awards for Best Debut Crime Fiction, deservedly so. Uh, but yeah, it's basically it centers around a or build as a fast-paced explosive thriller from an electrifying new voice uh so basically it follows sarah calhoun who is uh styled as a seemingly normal regular sydney soccer mum uh kind of reeling a little bit from a divorce but she uh has a past as it <laughs> as it quickly ca- catches up with her in the worst way imaginable when her son riley uh is taken away albeit uh leaves voluntarily to go to a prestigious sort of uh football training camp soccer for those not in the know uh, in Ireland unfortunately is around where she herself has escaped from uh, and there two men from Northern Ireland uh, two very different sides of the law track her down uh, and ultimately summon her or she is felt compelled to with her familial sort of motherly obligations and sense of protection of her son returns to Belfast where obviously things go awry pretty quickly but yeah Ray Cairns is a former youth worker uh, who turned to a life of crime writing uh, so yeah The Good Mother is her first novel which like I said uh, has been shortlisted for the best debut crime fiction in the 2021 Ned Kelly Awards which is incredibly prestigious for those in the know with the Australian crime writing scene but yeah so the the novel originally started from um, my guesses and as we're going to find out from Ray herself uh, draws from her inspiration working with uh, youth working as a youth worker I should say mentoring disadvantaged youth uh, many of them children of the paramilitaries in Northern Ireland during the final years of the Troubles. Admittedly, it was something that I didn't know too much about in terms of the Troubles. I thought the Troubles were, were over, foolish me, Mr. Lehman. But uh, yeah, Ray's going to set me right. So what I'd like you all to do is give a big digital round of applause to Ray Cairns talking to me about her debut novel, The Good Mother. Ray Cairns, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program tonight. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to have you. Happy to have you. Um, I wanted to start off with an oldie but a goodie, which I always like to ask. It's a bit of an icebreaker. I want to know where the origins for The Good Mother occurred from. So I saw in the acknowledgements there, very detailed acknowledgements, which I love to read about you touching down in Northern Ireland in 1997 and working at... The Cross Magellan, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, you've sent it. Cross, Cross Magellan. Cross Magellan, way off. But um, anyway, <laughs> paint me a picture there, Ray. What happened? Um, so it was during the final years of Northern Ireland's Troubles mm. and I went over initially um, with international volunteers abroad as an aid worker um, to, to Cross Magellan to uh, kind of keep the kids busy over summer. Uh, but the idea was to... I guess showed them there were other ways in the world, there were other people in the world, because they'd lived a fairly um, closed existence, I guess, in many ways. Uh, so I went there for a couple of weeks and played games and did drama and music and everything with them. And um, and then I was invited to go back up to Belfast to, um, I got a job, basically, with the European Union, uh, running camps up there or being a part of running camps up there, but taking kids from both sides of the divide. So um, 
the from disadvantaged areas, uh, kids from uh, like, like the IRA and the UVF basically, um, and took them away on camps together so they would meet for the first time. And um, that was the beginning of my journey in Northern Ireland, I guess. Um, while I was there, I, uh, through mutual friends, met a guy and um, he was so charming and <laughs> music and he could dance. It was amazing. And he was, um, he wooed me, I guess. And I fell for him quite quickly, um, but uh, about a few weeks in, um, a mutual friend kind of let it slip that my boyfriend was in fact an active paramilitary member. So oh. I was over there working against like trying to undermine the paramilitaries mm. and he knew that. So that was a big shock to me. Um, I broke things off straight away and I was a little bit heartbroken, but I was a lot confused. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to, I kind of was left with this bunch of questions like, um, you know, what if, what if I hadn't found out for much, a much longer period of time, how deep in would I have been? Mm. And, and what if he was only with me to get information on the other side? Because I was working with both sides of the, of the sectarian divide and, and because of the kids I was working with, their parents were quite active members of the paramilitaries. And so then I had this, you know, moment of like, oh, my God, did I give anything away? What if I did? What if I put someone in peril or something? I was pretty sure I hadn't. But um, And then the final question, I guess, was um, what if we met today? Mm. Um, so those kind of questions brewed and brewed for well, 18 years <laughs> till I sat down to write. And then um, I was a mum when I sat down to write and I'd found myself in conversations where people would say, you know, I'd do anything to protect my kids. And I decided to interrogate that. Like, what exactly does that mean? Anything? Like, how far mm. would you go? It, there are all sorts of moral ambiguities in that. There are, you know, what are the practicalities? Of, of that question so those two things combined those what if questions from the ex and and the mother you know how far a mother would go and then in 2016 I went back to Northern Ireland to kind of walk rewalk the the places the, the locations of the novel and the streets and um, I met up with some um, friends from youth work over there to talk with them about you know how things were now and I, I realised that I also wanted to incorporate the, the impact of um, civil unrest on individuals. And that was when I laid in the two boys who kind of in 1997 are 10 and then you see them as adults. God, um, touched on so many things that I wanted to, wanted to jump into <laughs> there. So I wrote down, I, think I, I don't think I'm paraphrasing, I think I wrote it down exactly. So it's the need to no lie, no sin, no betrayal. So I don't think I'm paraphrasing. I think that that was exactly so it stood out to me. I think that's in the first page actually, is and it was just yeah. really resting straight away. So I was like, okay, and that's clearly something that was the kernel of what you've explored there. And mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that, Ray, because in terms of the this this familial and makes more motherly need, I'd say, to protect or this 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 um, not so much a compulsion, but this programming to protect that can you know. Mm -hmm prevail over all what was it that it sort of ignited in you and what is it that can propel particularly I'd say a mother within these sort of circumstances to to do anything to protect what is it about that that particular perhaps dynamic between a mother and her children oh that's a big question oh I've um, got a few get, get, get excited <laughs> um it, it's something that that I I 
played around a lot with um, mm. because that that idea of what is a good mother, I think society puts a lot of um, expectations and mm. judgments on mothers. And, um, you know, that it's a very throwaway comment that, you know, mm. I'd do anything to protect my kids and you hear it a lot. So I think I really wanted to go, well, how far would I go? Yep. And then kind of taking that right to the next step, like, um, so Sarah does some things that are well out of the realm of what I would consider doing. I really, oh, really? push okay. the boundaries. Beg your pardon? I was, I, was, I was just expressing, I was like, okay, really? Well, that I think I would. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, and perhaps like I don't have her, I mean, she's got an incredible lack of trust. Mm. She's been betrayed pretty um, in, in a very volatile situation. She's been betrayed when she was working in 1996. 97 and and that impacted how she decided to to go forward in the rest of her life so she made the decision she would never trust anyone again and then when she had children her job was to protect them no matter what so I suppose when um, her past comes back into her life that really tests that um that commitment that she's made that she will do absolutely everything I mean at the beginning of the book she's almost level of helicopter parent she's mm. she's cottoning everybody she's trying to um preempt any danger and any any um kind of trouble that she can um and you know as as happens with teenagers they tire a bit of that <laughs> right what do you think it is about places themselves that can have these memories that are imbued that uh, a place is imbued with such traumatic memories that can indelibly sort of affect us for life so I don't I think that maybe one of the first at least one of the first first mentions of Belfast is her reading um sorry Sarah reading Riley's note I think that's one of the first mentions she has this such a visceral sort of reaction to just the mere mention of the place what do you think it is about places in particular and the memories that are imbued there that can kind of forever more alter our sort of uh, life like that? Look, I think um, Belfast and Northern Ireland, I'm going to talk from my experience, was such mm. a different place to to what I've experienced in Australia. Um, but there's, it's, it, 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 it's the, tra- the, there's a lot of trauma in, in the place. Like it's generational trauma across the ages and, and you, there's, so there's a the whole time I was there, there's like this undercurrent of danger and violence and threat. And I think when you've been living with that, your body becomes rewired. So um, you, it, I, I very much had when I came home, I had you know the, um, the, the trauma response of flight, fright, or, or, or uh, flight, freeze, or um, what's the other one? I can't think of the other one. Run, hide, and fight. 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 There we are. Um, So, and I very much had that. I didn't realise over there that I had it. Like I was fine when I was in Northern Ireland, or I would Mm. say that I was. I I got on with my work. I dealt with pretty um, confronting situations. I dealt with riots. I dealt with, you know, uh, both sides thinking I was favouring the other one. Um, I was, you know, picked up at my door by four guys and taken to meet their commander to kind of listen to their side of the story because they thought I was favouring the other side. And I I dealt with that okay there. It was when I got home Mm. that I fell apart. And and I found, like, I cannot bear the sound of a helicopter, even to this day. So it's, what, 25 years later, 
and I still almost freeze. Like I just, I have to stop talking and I need to know where it is because I don't know if you've seen the movie Belfast, but they did it really well at the beginning. They do a shot um, of a, a, a searchlight coming down from the helicopter following you up the street and it was just like that. It would just come on you and it would just follow you and it would follow you for ages and they'd hover over and the windows would shake and it was, um, so I guess I guess when you've had trauma, it's the, the place comes back to you through smells and sounds and the senses and, and all. So I really wanted to explore that more with Sarah. I mean, obviously what she had a much more traumatic experience than I did and I didn't realise that I'd kind of had that until I finished the book really like I didn't realize that I'd I probably you know had lingering you know traumatic stuff from there I, I just when I came home I put everything under my bed my mm. my photos my letters um my memories everything and just got on with life like just went okay that's it and moved on it wasn't until I kind of sat down to write the book and really had to look at my diaries and look at and revisit those memories and then go deeper. Like I wrote, there's a scene, um, a riot scene in the book, mm. and that I, I, when I first wrote it, I did it quite clinically and it didn't work. It, it didn't have anything on the page. So I really had to let myself go there and I guess kind of almost re-experience it, those visceral things, um, to, to recreate it in a way that I felt worked better. Yeah, well, okay. I, I just, I, well, I didn't know there was so much of a personal involvement within within that sort of um, world, but I guess you kind of needed that to, in order to deliver that sort of level of realism, which you've accomplished with The Good Mother. Oh, thank you. Yeah, look, I, I, I think it gave me enough of a, uh, an insight into both sides and into the, the experience of the everyday person on the street, mm. which I think we often weren't exposed to, that that I, I felt... I, I had enough there to be able to explore it, I guess, and, and write about it. And I was trying very carefully to not demonise one side or the other because I think that's the thing. I think that everybody's, every single person there had experienced trauma and, and we all process that differently. Um, yeah. I was going to, the kind of segue is almost my next question anyway, because I was going to say that was one of the main sort of standout achievements I noticed with your novel in terms of the non-demonising and the non-being partisan or slanting on one particular side as to, to who was specifically right when obviously neither side is particularly right or wrong in, in that regard. Was that at the forefront of your mind, Ray, when you were writing? Is that something that kind of changed throughout the drafts or is that something that, because I would imagine that... Um, I myself, if, if I was putting too much thought into it, if the writing process, I wouldn't be able to write a single word because I'd just be stewing my head in so much. Um, so I guess it helped that that's my belief system mm. for a start. Uh, I came home very much uh, feeling that that people mirrored each other's pain, you know, over there very much. Um, so I had that and then I sat down to write and I just had to force myself to go write, write the story, run with it, and I'm a, I'm a pantser, not a plotter which I really wish I was a plotter (laughs) I've tried but I'm not um so I kind of just had to let myself run with it and then afterwards um kind of in the editing process be really sensitive to (laughs) had I accomplished what I wanted which was a balanced approach it's interesting because there was another sort of standout for me as well it's got two sides of the fence you've got Alex Stone you've got Daniel McNulty on the other side um 
both of them fanatical in their own ways, both of them believing that they're, that they're, they're a believer in something and their cause and they're a fighter for this particular cause. And I wondered if you sort of uh, thought about that, if that was a thing that which you sort of intentionally explored, if that's something that just kind of came organically with the way in which people kind of style themselves or consider themselves as fighting for a cause and how much that can be sort of uh, to the benefit or detriment of the community in which they inhabit by believing so fanatically in fighting for a cause. Yeah, so I, I think I did definitely um, want to explore that. Mm. Um, I didn't realise I was going to explore it so much quite so much with Alec um, at the very beginning because I wasn't really sure who he was when I started writing, but definitely with Daniel um, and the experience that I had of people being, I I could understand where they were coming from and if you've had your father put in a helicopter and, you know, by the army and taken up and then pushed out Mm. thinking that he's falling from a great height and he's because they they did this in Cross McGlean to some you know, they were only like a metre off the ground, but he didn't know that. And so for the rest of his life he had trauma and, and you had your family taken, members taken away or your family killed by a bomb or, you know, you miss out on a job because of your nas- your, your your religion or like this every single person had been um, dramatically affected by the conflict. And uh, so and there were people that took it to an extreme mm. And, and that couldn't uh, have empathy for the other side. I mean, it, it was astonishing to me. Like I, I remember a kid telling me that, no, 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 the other side, that they've got horns in the back of their head. And and I was just like, what? what? I don't understand. Like I couldn't, it was such a, a mind-blowing, I was so naive when I got there mm. and it was mind-blowing to me. Like they didn't meet until half the time till they went to work or even then not or to uni um that the schools are separated the uh churches obviously are separated the um bus stops the taxis the shops you go to so there was no mixing and if you went to you know if you had a um, you know a very charismatic church leader telling you that the other side actually have you know, horns in the back of your head and you're six years old, you're going to take that on. Um, So I did really want to explore what kind of taking that to an extreme is when you believe so readily that you are right and the other side are evil, Mm. what that can do, I guess, within a society. Very much. And, I mean, I guess certainly within segregation that kind of then lends itself to demonising a people and kind of keeping them as this sort of faceless, sort of hostile enemy and you're the righteous kind. There and I think kind of allows for all sorts of atrocities to kind of breed. Absolutely. If you can dehumanise somebody, Mm. then, you know, you don't have to care for them. What about in terms of we've talked about feelings and a mother's sort of need to protect or somewhat programmed into into a mother, particularly within what you wanted to explore with Sarah. I wanted to explore just a little bit as well about a motherly intuition too, because I wanted to know, uh, I saw it shine through at one particular point with, um, I don't want to spoil too much, but with basically with um, Sarah meeting Siobhan and sort of what arises from there. But I wanted to know if that was also something, not just the protective element, but also the mother's intuition element as well of being a mother, Ray. And if that's something that's sort of, if that's something that is, is from your personal life or is that something that you just found interesting if, if a mother's intuition is something that, that is very much existent? And if so, does it, it, does it prove to be right most of the time or is it something that, that can lead one to sort of uh, 
astray. Does it prove to be right all the time? I don't know about that. I think I think if you're honest about your instincts, mm. and I don't know if this is particularly a mother, I just think if you're you're honest with your instincts, then yes, perhaps they are often right. Um, I, I wanted to also explore that idea that she didn't trust her instinct. Mm. Like she so her trauma is around betrayal, someone so and so she learned that she, her judgment couldn't be trusted. Um, so each time she has an instinct, it's easy for her to doubt herself. And then I also think I'm generalizing here, but I think women's um, concerns can get dismissed as anxiety or as um, overreaction or being over emotional. Or mm. and and, I, and I've definitely had some reactions uh, from readers about that with Sarah, like you know, oh, she drove me nuts because she was just she was you know. Um, anxious and 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 worried about everything um, and I wanted to kind of explore that a bit more and see I guess challenge um, people's perceptions of instinct and mm. and and of yeah if someone's concerned or worried it's not always just being over emotional or being overwrought and so at the beginning of the novel she all the people in her life think that that's who she is but they don't know anything mm. about mm. her time in northern ireland so they don't actually know where she's coming from and i think that's the other thing with with humans if unless you can really um spend the time to kind of not experience but listen to someone's lived experience mm. i don't know that you can judge it and you can um kind of assess what what things are like for them unless you've been in their shoes it's interesting that you mentioned about some readers interpretations of her with anxiety and stuff like that and i, I didn't um i didn't read it like that at all i just kind of um from someone that doesn't have to my knowledge have any children um <laughs> i do have a cat though and and that's yeah. that's enough in terms of um you know just panicking sometimes blind panic being smooth to blind panic just wondering saying oh my god what am i going to do to protect my my cat son but you know to have a to have a human child in that regard and there is just you know and within the context of the good mother i mean you know sarah's seen this the, the wretchedness and sort of all mm. these atrocities within northern ireland so that with that and you kind of touched on that too you know sort of um shaping her own sort of consciousness there of course you're going to naturally worry and freak out uh rightfully so because you've seen some of the worst elements of humanity so of course you're going to think that um yeah that was my takeaway i think that's why i wanted to do that so that readers felt that way at the beginning or some readers felt that way and then kind of had to question their own judgment later and go mm. ah you know there's a reason for that behavior I'm, I'm all about i suppose i write to kind of make sense of the world around me mm. and to um try to understand why people do what they do that's what really really interests me um so that was was part of that process you know why why do we jump so quickly to going oh that person's over emotional or whatever you know we don't know what what where that's coming from we don't know what their real history is what their lived experience is i'm with you right definitely all about the challenge and the preconceived notions through the through the storytelling i'm all about that yeah. as well look we've talked about protection support um i wanted to talk a little bit about uh, something i thought about is Sarah's the protector, no doubt. Um, you know, she she has some misadventures, etc. But you know, overall, that's that's sort of her gem. What sort of propels her? But I've also noticed uh, the more I thought about it before I had a chat with you, and I thought about the sort of different different people in Sarah's life. I thought about the unity of those we protect protect us as well, and there were sort of examples mm. of that. So I've written down here. So there was Michael and Sarah. 
There was also Max with Riley and what sort of happened there, you know. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this sort of uh, notional theme of we protect our loved ones, but our loved ones also protect us, perhaps sometimes without us kind of knowing that. It's just it's just felt. What do you think? Yeah, I, I've never thought about that within the, the novel. But, yeah, there's definite themes of protection all the different ways. And I suppose over the novel, different people come out of the woodwork in protecting mm. each other. Um, even like Riley, you know, wants to, you know, look after his mum and, and stuff at, at a certain point. Sorry, try not to do spoilers. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I hadn't realised how much that protection thing is is in the novel, like definitely with Sarah, but, it, yeah, it goes through all the other characters. I mean, Max, at the beginning of the book, that's her father, and um, they've had a falling out. They haven't spoken for mm. many, many years and, and this is his opportunity to come in and, and really be the father that she needed him to be many years ago. Um, and he steps up for her and for Riley and and for the family. Um, but even her ex-husband, um, Evan, wants to protect, you know, mm. um, protect Riley from Sarah's cotton-wooling and controlling behaviour. So, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. I always like to hear that. I always like to hear that. That applies translate straight to my own work as well. When people say something that I'm like, I never even thought of that. You know, that yeah. you're the first person to point that out. So it's always interesting as well. I want to just talk briefly about this, the, the notion of honour as well. Um, it was mainly it, my main interest in that sort of stemmed from, uh, I don't think it's a spoiler, but Jerry's gravestone uh, saying honourable to the end. And I think that that's, that works twofold and it's kind of a double-edged sword because I think that honourable is a dangerous, it can be a dangerous notion because people particularly, I'm sure, a lot of, um, you know, past, present members or, or people that have died fighting for the IRA cause would kind of identify one of the first, if you ask them to describe themselves, they'd say honourable. And I wonder if that was also something, Ray, not within so much within the context of Jerry, but perhaps the sort of pervasive element that might be felt throughout the sort of vibrations yeah, of the IRA. Absolutely. So Daniel's, Daniel's coming from a place of honour, mm. of, 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 you know, trying to reclaim family honour, trying to present the, you know, that, that probably is what drives him more than anything is, is the um, pride and honour, I guess. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that idea, it's interesting when you walk around the, um, like, Milltown Cemetery and, and various places and you, there's a lot of um, engravings about honour and things. So that was why I wanted to include the gravestone um, and the idea that, that yeah, that Jerry did what he did as an act of honour and that's how it was seen because um, he was a 17-year-old kid. He was, mm. you know, a young man. Um, so, yeah, that the, the idea of honour and came into it a fair bit because it is very much um, a thing over there that you and you can't be don't, don't kind of tread on my toes don't tread on my territory or I've mm. got to defend my territory um, yeah very much so I mean that that comes back to the you know me being called into meetings for people to tell me about their their cause because it's an honorable cause and it's a you know stems back to this that and the other and yeah getting me to try and understand their side and the honor in in them uh, following the tradition mm. of their parents and stuff kind of 
dovetailing off the honor is kind of a situation. And I, I think it was Felicity that said it actually towards the end, and it wasn't altogether entirely sort of encapsulating what the novel is about, but I felt like it might have actually kind of personified nicely what perhaps Northern Ireland's attitude might overall be towards the situation with the troubles. Um, again, I might be paraphrasing it a bit, but she said something like, what's the effect of, uh, we've all taken too big a share of the blame, it's time to move forward. And again, I think she was referring to their sort of personal narrative there but I thought that that kind of actually worked quite nicely as an overarching sort of attitude how much do you think that that is the case now where whereby it is like you know eye for an eye everyone will go blind and there will just be this sort of perpetual unending thing and everyone's kind of over and just wants to move forward in that in that sort of capacity what do you reckon Ray? Absolutely even when I was there in 97 the majority of people I mean that was just before the um, peace accord and and the majority of people just wanted to get on I mean Mm on with their lives most people just want to live somewhere safe you know watch their kids grow up get a job be happy be safe have food have shelter all those things um are commonalities in it doesn't matter what your religion mm. what your race what your, whatever you know identifiers that you know we as humans use we all have the same needs um need to feel that we're um can trust the people in charge we we need to feel that we can yeah live our lives safely so I think over there definitely um there was a sense of we just need to kind of go that's the end of the troubles now let's move forward and try and build something together Mm. It, it hasn't been as easy as that because when you've got like I've said before, the generational trauma and you've got certain, there are certain triggering events. So like when Brexit happened and they weren't sure what was going to happen with the border because of trade agreements and all that, that flared things. Um, And it's hard. You've also got like a generation of people, a couple of generations of people really, who, whose skills have been built around resistance Mm. and um, conflict and, and kind of guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare and yeah, so you, you you know, what do you do if you're a bomb maker and there's suddenly peace? It's not like you can use those skills in a in a new way. Um, so what happened with and, and so a lot of the ways that that both sides made money was through drug running. Mm. So you can imagine the you know, the conflict ends, they had the peace accord and everything. So oh, we're all going to, it's all going to be great. But these people, what do they do if they can't find a way back into a, a kind of more, um, into society, I guess, then, then they're going to use those skills in a different, you know, in a different way. They're not going to use it for a cause necessarily, or they can't give up the cause, but they, um, yeah. So there's a, there was a lot of um, involvement. It's, I think it's one of the highest countries for human trafficking now. Um, bringing people in through Northern Ireland because mm. um, the skills they had, the skill sets, and it wasn't addressed. It wasn't, you know, retraining and all of that. Um, I don't know. How do, how do you change when that's been your entire life and that's what you were raised to be? Gradually, I'd say, collectively. Very. So I think I think generationally, hopefully one more generation and there's mm. a bit of space from it, um, I hope. I hope yeah. so, too. Ray, last question I wanted to end with, and it's, it's the, the one that I found the, the show on because I always love to hear a writer's journey. And <laughs> might I say your acknowledgements were so beautiful. I love reading those because you thank so many people and I always love seeing a good support network for, for you know, burgeoning debut novelists. So it's always such a, such a joy to read that sort of stuff. 
but I wanted to know if there was ever a point that you sort of reached within your writerly journey where you almost considered giving up for whatever reason, whether it was a, a brief moment, it could have been one second, it could have been longer than that. And if so, what kind of made you prevail? So I've had a bit of an unusual journey to publication. Um, I wrote my manuscript. I got some feedback. I did a year-long mentorship with Catherine Heyman to improve the manuscript. And from that, I got a, a um, an agent who was very enthusiastic and talked about it, you know, oh, there's going to be a bidding war and everything. And she put it out to publishers and there were crickets. Mm-hmm. There was just nothing, no reaction. And I kind of knew the manuscript wasn't there yet. I needed more, but I just didn't know what to do. And my agent at the time wasn't sure either. So I took the manuscript back and sent it for a manuscript assessment with a, a woman that was an, um, had what had been a publisher. And I applied the notes and, and kind of wanted it to be the best it could be. And then I got another agent from that manuscript. And um, again, all excited and put it out. And this time there were some nibbles from publishers, but it didn't get over the line. Um, and then I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and I was um, really unwell for two years. So I had a reaction to medication. My hair fell out. I was wearing a wig. I could barely string a sentence together, let alone write one. So it took two years to get the medication right for it. And um, I got to the end of the two years and I, I rang my agent. I said, right, I'm ready to go. Like I'm, I'm all, all, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm ready. And um, and she said, I'm so sorry, Ray. I'm closing my agency. Oh, No. And that was my moment when I went, oh, my gosh, is this the universe telling me, like, bottom drawer, just give up? And that was where the people in my acknowledgements just had my back, my mentors, my writing group, my writing friends. You know, this manuscript has merit, they told me. And so I made the decision I was going to self-publish. And that was my my moment of I'm just, it deserves to be read. It deserves to be out there. Um, that was, you know, what people were telling me. So I spent 10 months kind of learning every aspect of the industry I possibly could because when you self-publish, you're mm. like a, a mm. CEO of your own, you know, own company. So I did that and I put it out in December 2020. And it was amazing. I had so much support from the writing community and I got, uh, you know, a, a review in a, a, pay, a national paper. And I, I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate with the support that I had. The Australian writing industry is, when they get you behind you, they really do. And it's it's quite a special thing. So then in February, so I was like, okay, it's out. It's done well. I, I, it went beyond my family and friends. That's all I can ask for. Woohoo. Great. And I was ready to draw a line under it and started writing book two. And then in February, I got a um, a phone call, or I think it was an email actually, from um, Belinda Publishing. And a, a vision impaired lady had contacted them and said that she wanted to listen to my book. Oh. And they read a copy and offered me an audiobook contract. So that was amazing. And I thought, wow, this is it. You know, I've hit the heights now. I'm hybrid published. I'm both. So that came out in June. And then in, in the July, um, I got a phone call from a friend who said, congratulations. And I went, um, on what? And they said, oh, you've been shortlisted for best debut crime fiction in the Ned Kellys. And that blew me away. And it changed my life. So all of a sudden the offers came in and two weeks later I had um, an agent and a week after that I had a two-book publishing deal with HarperCollins. Oh so it's been quite an up and down. <laughs> but, um, 
I wouldn't have done it any other way, I don't think, because the people I've met along the way and the experiences I've had and, I don't know, the manuscript got to grow and grow and grow and I learnt so much. I mean, it's probably like my 20th novel, the amount of, <laughs> you know, the amount of versions I've had of it. But, um, yeah, I, I it was what kept me going is I wanted it to be the best it could be um and I felt like it was a story I had to tell Mm. I don't know I can't describe it any other way but it was also the people in my life I mean that moment when she told me she was closing her agency I was ready to I just thought that's a sign and that was when the people in my life the, the community I had around me stepped up Oh, my God, that's so good to hear. That's seriously like one of the best versions of that answer to that question I've ever had, right? Because, <laughs> and I felt very much felt filtered in my soul because certainly I'm kind of going through that now a little bit at the moment, like with um, my manuscript out with a literary agent sending it to publishers, still haven't heard anything over the course of like six weeks. And I'm like, oh, man, it's actually, I'm finding it more stressful than not having a literary agent and not having a literary agent sending it out. But um, I might it's tell tough. you that stuff after the record goes off anyway. But um, look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the Right Way Podcast. And I thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate and I appreciate the support you have for the industry. So everyone, there you have it. That was Ray Hands and I discussing her hugely popular, hugely successful debut crime novel, The Good Mother. Uh, so huge thanks to Ray for talking to me on the program tonight uh, about The Good Mother. Good to see her uh, enjoying breakaway success with The Good Mother. Um, there's always a special place in my heart for for crime, the crime genre. Uh, and I always like to hear different stories, uh, particularly admittedly in places or corners of the world that I'm not, uh, don't all know all that much about. So yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to Ray Cairns about The Good Mother and seeing her doing well and while I'm in the uh, thank you mood thank you so much to Ray for appearing on the show and also of course as you know I'm going to next lead to thank you to you dear listener for listening to not only this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program but I'm quite sure that you're already well versed within the as we like to refer to it ever proliferating back catalogue as well if you're not as well if you are one of the minority that are not yet uh, well versed in that ever proliferating back catalogue then please by all means you're in for a treat veritable treat go now and scroll down to the very beginning way back when in around november 2020 and uh yeah give yourself a treat of the ears and listen to all the episodes of all the guests that i've had thus far on the program been a crazy crazy journey 60 something plus guests now uh showing no signs of stopping uh but that being said it is getting towards the pointy end of the year which i'm going to be wrapping up quite shortly i've got a few more guests coming up for you but my lord they're going to be special so get excited for that as well and then i'm going to have a little bit of a break and continue to pursue what i think i've mentioned in a couple of the more recent podcast apps uh pursue my own sort of uh long form writing there as well which is coming along quite nicely i must say uh in terms of productivity so yeah i'll keep uh, keep chip chipping away at that as i hope very much that you are if indeed you are an aspiring writer as well uh just day by day as it is uh keep doing what they're doing there you know just like the powder finger song day by day uh kind of a little bit different sort of context and the themes thematically for that song but you know what i mean day by day continue to write and do what you're doing uh yeah in the interim if you haven't already be sure to give a cheeky follow on the spotify if that's where you're listening to this on or on soundcloud as well uh because more episodes will follow and they'll have a little bit of a break but in the interim thank you so much for listening to this episode and i bid you a lovely evening morning or afternoon